the music tonight and for your good singing. We continue this evening our study regarding the coming kingdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we began a study of what the kingdom will be like, what the conditions will be upon the earth in those days that are surely coming. I'd like for you to turn first this evening in your Bible to the prophet Micah. Would you do that, please? Micah in the Old Testament and turn in his prophecy to the fourth chapter, the first verse. If you see Jonah, you know you're getting close. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. We have said before that the mountain, prophetically speaking, anticipates a government, a rule, an authority. And what it says here is that the mountain or the government or the kingdom of the last days will be the Lord's. And it will be established as the chief of the authorities, the governments upon the earth. It says it will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he that is the king, that is Messiah, he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. We have studied previously that uh, the earth in the time of the kingdom, will be blessed. And the reason for that is that Satan is bound for that thousand-year period of time. He is incarcerated in the bottomless pit, he is guarded there and kept there until the thousand-year reign of Christ should be completed. Furthermore, the curse that has been placed upon the earth will be lifted in that day, resulting in great prosperity in agriculture, in the at least the diminishing, if not the removal, of disease and deformities. Population on the earth will soar during that thousand-year reign of Christ. This will be accompanied by universal peace. Now is a time of wars and rumors of wars, but not so then. Even as we read here, instruments of war will be turned into instruments for agriculture. Now what is suggested to us here in these verses and in some others we're going to look at is accompanying these other characteristics that we've studied, and I'm speaking of world prosperity. One reason that we touched on last week is that the vast sums of money that now must be placed into defense and armaments 
Even that alone will allow a tremendous prosperity in the world because it will no longer be needed for those purposes and can be channeled into good and uh, beneficial purposes for humanity. Turn back, please, to the book of Isaiah as we look at a couple of other passages dealing with these last days when the Lord will reign on the earth. I'm speaking first of Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll begin reading in verse 3. Now remember this is addressed to Babylon. That is historic Babylon, but Babylon also has a future fulfillment, a prophetic Babylon. Uh, Babylon is not only a king, but it is a system of government. In the last days, in the tribulation period, there will be uh, a world control at the hands of Antichrist that is addressed as Babylon, Babylon the Great. It will be a world political, economic, religious system all wrapped into one. Now here, historic Babylon is being addressed by Isaiah, but there are words that speak to the future Babylon and to those days beyond that Babylon after it is destroyed when Jesus will reign. Now it says in verse 3, it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution." The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. Isaiah is prophetically looking forward to that period of time when Babylon, as it will be reconstituted, and its king, its leader, will be destroyed. And there will be, as it says here, peace upon the earth. Fury will have ceased. There will be rest and quiet and shouts of joy at the defeat of the enemies of God and the establishment of Christ's kingdom. This is speaking about world prosperity. Turn back a couple of pages to Isaiah 11. And look in verse 3. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He is the king. This one who is the shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse. Upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests. Christ. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Now, of course, anyone who judges is left only to that. He must judge upon what he hears with his ears and sees with his eyes. There is no other basis for judgment. But in the coming kingdom, our Lord as he reigns will not judge merely on the basis of what he hears and what he sees. 
because all of us know that that can be deceiving. It says in verse 4, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And righteousness, also righteousness, will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And so we see that there is one who will judge the earth in that day, who will judge in accordance with what he perfectly knows to be the truth. There will be no deception, no, no pulling the wool over the eyes of this judge. This king will judge perfectly and decide with equity and with fairness. And righteousness and faithfulness will fully characterize him as he reigns for a thousand years over the earth. World prosperity, because of the reign of Jesus Christ, will characterize the millennium. And then in addition to that, spiritual blessings will characterize the millennium. Here in Isaiah 11 and verse 9, it says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a universal knowledge of the Lord in the millennial reign. Habakkuk joins with this in chapter 2 and verse 14 with almost identical words. He says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ unparalleled spiritual blessings on the earth. There will be nearly a universal worship of Christ. Now I say nearly universal because there will be those who will not worship Him in their hearts. Outwardly, certain things will be required. But there will be some who will not worship the Lord in their hearts. Now who are they? Who are these that will feign worship of Him? Well, it is those who will be born in the millennial reign. Keep in mind that at the initiation of the reign of Jesus Christ, there will be a population of people who will yet be in their natural bodies. We will not be. Nor will those who have been resurrected from the Old Testament period or from the tribulation period be in natural bodies. We will be in resurrection bodies. There will not be marrying and propagation uh, in that time by us. But there will be people saved in the tribulation period who will live through that terrible time of suffering and persecution for the Lord's people. And they, in their natural bodies, in their physical bodies, will enter into the kingdom. And they will begin to reproduce. And among their offspring, there will be some who will not inwardly yield with the heart to Jesus Christ. They may outwardly go through the motions that will be required of people in that, that time. But in their hearts, they will not receive him. And we will see in a moment what happens to them. But there will be, at least outwardly, nearly a universal worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual blessings 
will be like the waters in the ocean in that day, universal across the earth. The earth will know fullness of joy, holiness, glory, comfort, justice, and spiritual instruction. And then another characteristic of the kingdom time will be political unity. There is, of course, quite some disunity in the world today. There is not a political oneness. Uh, Each nation has its own thing, its own concerns. But in that day, it says in Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Zechariah echoes with that in chapter 14 and verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. So there will not be many political entities in that day. There will be one kingdom. Now, it will be subdivided. There will be nations in that day. And other mountains, as Isaiah said in our passage we read earlier. But the mountain of the Lord will be the chief mountain. All of the other governments will be subservient to His overarching government as He reigns upon the earth. And we who are believers in the promises of God, uh, will reign with Him. Those from the Old Testament who, are, who were righteous, who believed the promises of God, will be resurrected to share in this reign of Christ. Abraham longed for this day. David looked forward to this day. And they, along with the other righteous from the Old Testament, will be resurrected at the beginning of it, in the first resurrection to participate in the kingdom. They will reign with Christ, as will the church, and as will those who have died and been martyred in the tribulation period. It says in Revelation chapter 20 that they will be raised to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be a part of that kingdom. Exactly what part, uh, just how we will fit into that, the Word of God is not entirely clear. But the fact is that if we endure... We will reign with him, writes Paul to Timothy. Now it is important for us as we think about the kingdom to consider how it will end. Because remember that the millennium is a thousand years. The kingdom of our Savior is an eternal kingdom. In the sense that he will always reign. But that eternal kingdom will be initiated by this 1,000-year period of time. And at some point, that 1,000 years will be over. The question is, what happens next? When this time of prosperity and peace and blessing and unity is over, what happens then? God gives us something of an answer to that in the 20th chapter of the book of the Revelation, and I invite you to turn there with me. We've already referred to the first three verses of this chapter where Satan is incarcerated. Uh, We have talked about the resurrection of the righteous at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. That's verses 4, 5, and 6. And now we come to verse 7. It says, And when 
the thousand years are completed. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them, that is the people who follow him, is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Someone has referred to this as the second coming of Satan. Because after having been imprisoned for the thousand years, he comes again to the earth and begins, it would seem, to influence the nations with deceit, with deceit. And it says that he will gather out from the nations a multitude like the sand of the seashore. Who are these people? These are they who over that 1,000 year reign of Christ were born and who outwardly went through the motions of worshiping Christ, but who did not give their hearts to him. Had they disobeyed, had they overtly rebelled and sinned in that thousand-year reign of Christ, the Word of God suggests that they would have been dealt with at that point. But these people outwardly went along with everything. And now Satan is released that those who were not genuinely following Jesus Christ might be ferreted out, that they might be separated out from those who truly do follow Jesus Christ the King. Now what will be the deceit that Satan will cast upon these people? The same sort of lie that he has used from the beginning, that somehow they will be able to overthrow the reign of God? Why are they gathered as they seem to be on the plain of the earth near the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What is that? That must surely be identified with Jerusalem. Well, what is Jerusalem? It is the place where our Lord will visibly rule. And so you see, here we have an army that is gathered by Satan to march against the capital city of the world at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And there is... uh, the thought in their minds that somehow they are going to overthrow Jesus Christ. Well, how ridiculous. Yes. But you see, so complete is the deceit of Satan that he thinks he will do that in the end, and he will convince those unbelievers in the millennium that they will also be able to overthrow Jesus Christ. Now there are those who would say, well, this is actually but a restatement of the Battle of Armageddon. Well, if language means anything, it seems to me that it cannot be Armageddon. Because Armageddon is in the previous chapter before the thousand years. This is clearly after the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in the Battle of Armageddon, the armies are destroyed through the coming 
of Jesus Christ to the earth on his white horse with his armies following him. Here they are destroyed by fire that comes down from heaven and devours them. The battle of Armageddon is followed by the birds of the air coming to eat the flesh of those who are killed in that battle. And then judgment comes in the reign of Christ. But here, and then Satan is incarcerated, but here we see that the devil is finally, ultimately dealt with. So this is not the battle of Armageddon. This is yet the final war. This is that final expression of rebellion on the part of Satan and mankind, sinful mankind. And it will be dealt with by God. Following that, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Notice the present tense. That's where they are. That's where they have been for a thousand years. For the beast, Antichrist, and the false prophet, his chief religious leader, are the first two inhabitants of the eternal lake of fire. The lake of fire is not hell. They are not identical. Gehenna, hell, as we refer to it, is that place where people go now. But the lake of fire is that eternal, permanent place of punishment that God has prepared for the devil and his angels and all of those who reject God. The beast and the false prophet are there for a thousand years and the number three inhabitant of the lake of fire is the devil himself who will be cast into that lake and it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. These words are horrible beyond imagination. It goes on to say, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Can you imagine the visage of a person, the presence of an individual that would cause the very physical universe to quake and to shake and to flee? Such is the personage of the one who sits on this throne, the great white throne, it is called. No place was found for heaven and earth, and he says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Keep in mind that these are unbelievers. No believer, no saint of God will stand in this judgment. These are all of those who are lost and who have lived from the beginning up until that time and who have rejected God. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. You see, there is a final measurement of the wickedness of the life of every person. All of the fallout 
of each wicked life is fully known by this time. Time has ceased. The clocks have finished. And so now there is a final accounting for every unbeliever before the presence of God himself. And it says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is not one of us that can read these words with any delight. There is no joy here. There surely is vindication of the holiness and the righteousness of God. But I can guarantee you there is no delight in the heart of God in the death of the wicked. But all of those who go into eternity without a personal relationship to Jesus Christ will stand in this judgment and there be fully accounted for. His whole life will be brought before him. All of those deeds that were thought gone, that were thought hidden, that perhaps were unknown by others, everything is brought into the light. And the degree of punishment is determined by God. Yes, there will be degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. And then it seems almost as if to make a last check, the book of life is there. And a search is made of the book of life to see if any of these names might perchance be there. But none can find their name in the book of life. And it says that they are cast. Now remember, they have been resurrected into bodies. They are no longer spirits. They have been resurrected into bodies that are capable of experiencing the lake of fire. And it says that they are cast into the lake of fire. That is the final judgment. Every one of us will stand at some judgment before God. And actually, no thought of judgment is pleasant. And yet, to have to fear standing at this judgment, to have to ponder oneself being there before this great white throne and experiencing that awful second death is almost an unbearable thought. My friend, there is one eternity, but there are two destinies. Every one of us will spend that eternity forever and forever in blessing or in banishment, in heaven or in hell or the lake of fire. What is your eternal destiny? Are you sure? Are you beyond the shadow of a doubt certain tonight 
that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? If you are not sure of that, will you tonight trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Will you bow the knee and receive him into your life so that your name can be inscribed by an angel indelibly in the book of life? Following that final judgment, there will be a turning over of the kingdom to God the Father. We don't have time to look at that in detail. In fact, the details are broad strokes, not easily understood in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Once the kingdom has been delivered over to the Father, then there is going to be a fiery renovation of the heavens and the earth which have fled away from the presence of him who sat on the throne. Peter describes it in the third chapter of his second epistle. With a loud hissing sound, the entire universe will return to its basic elements. And then God is going to start over again. And as it says here in Revelation 21, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. And now we enter in to what is beyond all of those things associated with time. We come into that future state that we call eternity future. It is a timeless state when we will forever be with the Lord. And notice in closing the final words here of this description in Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be among them. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, there's had to be a separation from mankind and God. But in that new Garden of Eden, as it were, in that new creation, God will dwell among men. His tabernacle will be with us. And it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In verse 6 it says, He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes, that's the believer, shall inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Oh, what a future awaits the child of God. But he says, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray.
My friend, someone has said, if you're born but once, you must die twice. But if you're born twice, you may die but once. The second death. As surely as there is a heaven, there is a hell. As surely as there is blessing for God's own, there is punishment for those who reject Him. I wonder with our heads bowed and our eyes closed if there's one person here tonight, old or young, man or woman, who would say, Pastor Call, I am not sure of my destiny. I do not have assurance in my heart that heaven is where I'm headed. I want to be sure. Pray for me. Would you lift your hand and put it down? Pray for me as we close the service. As I read about the lake of fire, my soul trembles within me because I fear that's where I'm headed. May I pray for you? Is there one? Father, it would appear that all of us tonight have that assurance of the Spirit within our hearts that we are the sons of God. I thank you that it does not yet appear what we shall be or shall enjoy, but one day we will experience the fullness of all that you have promised in your word. Lord, I pray that you will remind all of us that it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Father, there are some of your children here tonight who are struggling in the midst of battles. Some are discouraged. Oh, I pray that you will encourage them in the fight. May they fight the good fight of faith. And I pray that they will keep their eyes lifted up. Deliver them, I pray, from heaviness and from mourning. And fill them with joy even in the midst of the battle, knowing that it will be worth it all. That if we endure, we shall also reign with Christ. Father, I pray that even now we will live as good citizens of the kingdom. And I pray that as we continue our pilgrimage in this world, headed toward those things that we have studied in recent weeks and months about the end of the age, that we will do so considering the manner of people we ought to be, how holy and righteous our lives should be, upon whom these things have come. Thank you for the destiny that by grace you have given us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.